This morning's reading is from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 23. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that, they, pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be the days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything in advance. Thank you, Claire. Just before we get cracking and look at this passage, I want to flag with you the carol service, particularly the carol service, is going to happen next Sunday evening. Uh, there are many, many people who enjoy coming into a church to sing carols who actually, frankly, don't bother visiting a church in between carol services. And one of the things that we do here is to make sure there's a really clear presentation of what it means to know Jesus and how to follow him and so it's a great service to bring along friends too and I just wanted to make sure that you're aware that by the door over there are some uh, invitations really just setting out when the carol service is and you can give it to a friend say do come along they're really good fun our carol services and the church will be packed 
but there will be room for you and your friends. Let's pray that God will speak to us now from this passage. Father God, thank you for your presence with us. We pray that you would open the scriptures to us now. And as we place our feet on solid ground, you would give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever I'm on holiday with my wife, Liz, uh, and I look across and see her reading a book, I quite often catch her sneaking to the back pages first. And when she first did this, it was a mystery to me that anyone could start reading books from the back to the front rather than from the front to the back, as I tend to read them. And we had a discussion about it, and I said, doesn't it ruin the book for you if you know how it's going to end? And she said, not at all, absolutely not, no. Uh, Once I know how it's going to end, then I can enjoy the rest of the book. It it sets me free from anxiety, and uh, you know, I know where I'm heading, and I can get on with it. That is very much what Jesus is up to here in this particular part of his teaching to the disciples. In Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 13, that you just had read to you, at least a large part of it, it, it's the biggest single chunk of teaching recorded in Mark. There is no Sermon on the Mount in Mark. There is this teaching which takes place on the Mount of Olives. Sometimes it's called the Olivet Discourse. And he is putting the disciples in a good place to endure to the end. I think that is the whole point of this teaching. It, frankly, it, it's a little bit disappointing, if I dare say that, to us, the modern reader, because what we want is an almanac of events with dates attached. That, that's, you know, we, we'd like to be able to follow it in that way, but that isn't the way it works here. It's not in the least bit disappointing in the sense, yeah, I'd hate Jesus to think I was saying his teaching was disappointing, but in the sense that it equips us to walk through the days that are ahead. I would summarize it this way, knowing the ending is a key to enduring. Knowing the ending will turn out to be a key to enduring. And even if you were just half awake when that lesson was read to you, surely the catalogue of disasters that Jesus predicts would happen, your famines, wars, rumors of wars, families turning against one another, etc., etc., is enough to make your hair stand on end. But Jesus wants us to be able to navigate our way through it. Some time ago, I came across something that Churchill said when he was trying to put steel into the backbone of this country shortly before the outbreak of World War II. And I'm going to try it out on you, but the the language is a bit archaic, but the principle that he is sharing is very, very valuable. I'll, I'll, um, I'll try it out on you. This is what he said. Those who are possessed of a definite body of doctrine and have deeply rooted conviction upon it will be in a much better position to deal with the shifts and surprises of daily affairs than those who are merely taking short-term views, indulging their natural impulses as they are evoked by what they read from day to day. 
And if you can make head or tail of that, I think it's very sound advice. He, he's saying, you know, we really don't want to be those who are tossed to and fro as we pick up the newspapers every day. We need to know general principles about what's going on. And Jesus in this passage provides us with those principles. It's, it's easy when you first read this passage or have it read to you, I think it's almost inevitable that our eyes are drawn to the calamitous events. Whereas it's more healthy, perhaps, to focus on the reassurances that accompany those events. If you just focus on the events, I think you'll panic and lose heart. But if we focus on the reassurances, we can know peace in the middle of trouble. Now, I think there's something to be said right up front about the place of prophecy in Scripture. Because one of the remarkable things about the prophecies of Scripture is they're often fulfilled more than once. It would be fair to say about many of the things that Jesus says in this passage, well, surely, Jesus, these things happen all the time, wars, famine, persecution, delusional religious leaders. And in one sense, you're right. And in fact, many a commentator has been quick to say that a lot of the calamities that Jesus talks about here were specifically going on either in his lifetime or in the 50 years after his death. So war was going on then, it won't surprise you to know. The Parthians were, in fact, pressing on the edges of the Roman Empire. Jesus prophesied earthquakes, and within 40 years of him saying these things, the Roman world was rocked as Laodicea suffered an enormous earthquake, and probably you know about the eruption of Vesuvius, which wiped out Pompeii. Famine was prophesied, and in the reign of Claudius, that too happened. But an example of a prophecy happening more than once, being fulfilled more than once, actually hinges around what Jesus says when he's quoting from the book of Daniel. What he says here in Mark 13, 14, and 15, he says this, when you see, and here's a quote from Daniel, the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it doesn't belong, let the reader understand, and then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now he's quoting Daniel's prophecy when he talks about the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel said that would happen. And within three and a half years of him saying that, around 170 BC, the Syrian king, whose real name was Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes meaning apparently glorious, well, he was known by the nickname Epimenes, which means crazy, Antiochus the crazy. And he set out to crush the Jews and he placed an altar to Zeus in the temple. He had pigs sacrificed on the altar, and he turned the Levites' quarters into a, a prostitution chambers. And um, no one was sad, I think, when he died insane after being defeated by the Maccabean revolt. But that was a time when this prophecy was fulfilled. But after Jesus spoke and referred to that prophecy in AD 70, Jerusalem fell and to the army of Titus, who was later the emperor of Rome. And it was a time of unmitigated horror. Josephus, the historian, describes how people crowded into Jerusalem from the countryside and Titus starved them into submission. 
in a particularly graphic description, which I have edited down, uh, he gives us an eyewitness account. He says, then did the famine widen its progress and devoured the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children dying of starvation. The lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged. The children and the young men wandered around the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with famine, and fell down dead wherever their misery seized them. There was no lamentation made under these calamities. The famine confounded natural passions. A deep silence and a kind of deadly night seized the city. Well, while the action that's prophesied is captivating, I think it's our reaction and response that is critical. And I want to just highlight two main headings to help us remember how to react because it seems to me Jesus stresses these two things. The first one is this. We need to be on our guard. We need to be on our guard. We really mustn't be taken by surprise. How do I come to that conclusion? Well, Jesus repeats it again and again. So within this chapter, verse 5, Jesus said to them, watch out, no one deceives you. And verse 9, you must be on your guard. And verse 33, be on your guard, be alert. You don't know when that time will come. And verse 35, keep watch because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back. This is much easier said than done. I think the reason Jesus repeats it again and again and again is A, because he wants us to take it on board, but B, it's difficult to do. It's very hard to stay on high alert for long periods of time. It's very challenging. Why? What is the danger that we might be caught off guard? Well, one of the dangers is precisely what's taking place that prompted this conversation. Peter, James, John, and Andrew sitting opposite the amazing temple, which was incredibly impressive. And one of them presumably innocently says to Jesus, look what magnificent stones, you know, isn't this amazing? And Jesus says, well, don't be sucked into that. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And that's hard to believe. And we find it hard to believe because anything which is impressive structurally has the, makes the impression on us of permanence. If you want an illustration, I can think of no better illustration than the Titanic, the ship. You know, it was made on a huge scale. It was massively luxurious. Uh, the china that people were eating off spoke of wealth and permanence. The, the orchestra that was playing was fantastic. And when the architect of a ship blundered in and said it's about to sink, they said, no, 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 let's just get on with the next dance. It's what we do because we don't like to think of these things. It's difficult to think of impressive things being dismantled. But Jesus says it'll happen. Secondly, militating against us being on our guard. I think we have this built-in optimism that surely disaster can't happen here. No, can't happen here. And there are so many illustrations of this. During the Second World War, uh, many, many, many villages had advance warning of the coming of 
the persecution of the Jews and the Nazis, and many families chose not to believe it because it's so difficult to think it could happen here. Or much more recently, for weeks before the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians, there were pictures on our TVs of the tanks amassing on the borders with Ukraine. And still people were saying, no, no, it won't happen, it won't happen. But it does. And I think another reason we find it hard to actually be on our guard and to watch is because when you do watch, what you see is so shocking, it's much easier to look away and disengage. We all know that war's going on, but I think I choose not to know what the consequences are. So I read that at least a quarter of the entire global population lives in conflict-afflicted areas. Some of the worst afflicted places are Ethiopia's Tigray region, South Sudan, Syria, Yemen, and Afghanistan. I think that was uh, written before either what's going on in Israel at the moment or in Ukraine. But according to the UN, 84 million people were forcibly displaced in 2022 because of conflict. By the end of 2022, e.g. into 2023, it was estimated that 339 million people would need humanitarian assistance. In other words, one in 23 people on the planet would need help in order to survive. You know, when you think about these things and let them actually penetrate, they're even worse than you think they are. And so we don't. And that's why we could be caught off guard. Of course, there's another reason we could be caught off guard. We just read this passage and say, well, Jesus, you said all this so long ago, and you said you'd be coming back so long ago, but you haven't yet, so maybe I can discard it. But that's entirely the wrong way to read it. We ought to be saying to ourselves, if 2,000 years have gone by since he said it, my goodness, we're a lot closer to the fulfillment than it was. So the first thing in reaction is look up, look out. Be ready, be on your guard. And the second thing is this principle. History is his story. History is his story. The Lord reigns. What this passage tells me Jesus wants me to know is that he will be with us, come what may, as his story rolls out. He's in control of it, even if he didn't cause the suffering within it. And so he says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. He speaks as the author of history. And so he says in verse 23, I've told you everything ahead of time. And as you read the passage, isn't it clear to us that the general impression isn't one of progress in society so much as progressing towards a desperate state? And it strikes me, yes, these things have been going on all the time, but we still need to wake up, for example, religious deception. Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. And I think they do, in a much more subtle way than you and I might want. 
I think they rewrite, it's tempting to rewrite the Christian faith. You leave the name of Jesus in it, but you rub out the need for him to die for us. You celebrate the wonderful things that he did, but you choose not to look at the fact that he actually dies on the cross for our sins, to forgive us. Or then you choose to uh, not embrace the fact that he rose from the dead, the resurrection. That's absolutely the key to our hope. It's subtle how we can undermine the truths of Christianity. And Jesus says, watch out, people will be out to deceive you. But he also says that when persecution comes, the Holy Spirit will help us. Society will become fragmented, says Jesus. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child, children will rebel against their parents. There'll be lawlessness. But against all this background, friends, God will be at work. As I've said, he is in control. Such things must happen, says Jesus. And amongst them is a thread of hope. The gospel will go out to all the nations. I, w I wonder what that sounded like to Peter, James, John, and Andrew. You know, these, in, in some ways, the four of them, you know, four little fishermen, absolute nothings, sitting opposite this huge temple. And Jesus looks at them and says, and the gospel, this good news you've watched me proclaim for the last three years, is going to go out right throughout the world, through you. Do you think they kind of, what do you think they thought? I mean, do you think in, I just think in heaven, as they watch that we're still talking about Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they think, oh, staggering, isn't it? We, we, we never thought that would come to pass. Or maybe they did. But the thing is, the gospel will go out. It's a fantastic promise. The Holy Spirit will help you, he says. When you're arrested and you're brought before those in authority, don't worry in advance what you'll say, because the Holy Spirit in that moment will help you. And I thought, because I know this has been a bit of an alarming talk, I thought I'd give us an illustration of the Holy Spirit helping. And it comes from the life of a Romanian pastor called Paul Negrut. And he tells a story of a true instant uh, which involves his friend, and his friend is called Trian Dawes. And I'll read it to you. What, what happened was that Pastor Negrut went to visit his friend, and he finds him bleeding and with open wounds, and he asks, what's, what's going on? What's the story? And Trian Dawes says to him, the secret police have just left my house, and they confiscated all my manuscripts, and they beat me. So not surprisingly, Paul in the group complains about the heavy tactics of the secret police. And he, he is sympathizing with his friend when his friend says, no, look, let, let's just pray together. God didn't bring us together tonight to complain, but to praise him. So let's kneel down and pray. And he knelt down and began praying for the secret police. He asked God to bless them and save them. And he told God how much he loved them. And he said, God, if they'll come back in the next few days, I pray you'll prepare me to minister to them. Absolutely staggering, isn't it? And then Trian explained that the secret police had been coming to his home regularly for several years. They would beat him up twice a week. They confiscated all his papers. And after the beating, he would talk to the officer in charge. He would look him in the eyes and he would say, Mister, I love you. And I want you to know that if our next meeting is before the judgment throne of God, you won't go to hell because I hate you, but because you've rejected God's love. 
and Trian would repeat these words after every beating. Years later, the officer came alone to his home one night and Trian prepared himself to be beaten up again. But the officer didn't do that. Instead, he spoke quietly and kindly and he said, Mr. Dawes, the next time we meet will be before the judgment throne of God. And I came tonight to apologize for what I did to you and to tell you that your love moved my heart. I've asked Christ to save me. Two days ago, the doctor discovered that I have a severe case of cancer and only a few weeks to live before I go to be with God. And I came tonight to tell you that we'll be together on the other side. It's a remarkable story. It's somewhat bittersweet, isn't it? But it is an illustration of the Holy Spirit doing exactly what Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do. And in the middle of all this cataclysmic teaching of Jesus is the reassurance it will end well. It will end well. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. Jesus' followers are called the overcomers, not the wilters. They sing, we will overcome, not we will wilt. <laughs> and he will see us through to the end. God has cut short the time of suffering, we're told. And of course, the climax of our reassurance is the second coming. And I've been incredibly disciplined and stopped short of talking about that because Mark Beard's going to talk about that in two weeks' time. And uh, so long as Jesus doesn't come back before that, Mark, we're looking forward to it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus sat down with his friends and talked them through a, a survival strategy. And we grab hold of everything that you said, Jesus. We're reassured that nothing that we see in the newspapers or on our televisions or around about us has taken you by surprise. You saw it all coming. And we praise you and thank you that interwoven with the expectation of so much suffering is the promised help of the Holy Spirit, is your pledge guarantee that you walk amongst us and with us, is the hope that the gospel will go into all the world. We pray, Lord, that you be the lifter of our heads and the shield about us. Keep us prayerful hopeful and watchful, we pray, and ready and expecting your return. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord with a song.